0: Hour number two of Canucks Central is presented by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. If you missed hour one of the show, did a little bit more discussion around coaching and analytics, how it influences coaching decisions, and also went through some of the The coaches in the Pacific Division and where Bruce Boudreaux ranks plus Kevin Woodley, our goalie guru on goalie tactics and just why Ian Clark is one of the best, if not the best, in the league. Continues to be like the area of the Canucks organization that really stands out above the rest of the league's at. And now, like, it's good that you have one area. Uh-huh. Like, how do you build out more areas that really lead
1: you to organizational wins? Well, and building out your organization to that point is what you have to do. Because we saw we said for so long, yeah. and you're right, the one area you don't worry about for this organization is the goalie department. Yeah. Between Curtis Sanford, who's uh, the protege under... Ian Clark, and of course, the goaltending itself with Thatcher Demko, you don't worry about it. You feel really good about it. How do you get an organizational edge in other ways? And when it comes to analytics, because that's the easy thing to say, I'm not sure the Canucks are going to be having an edge over anybody else. Could they get on par with some of the top teams? Yes, but there are teams that are pushing the boundaries quite a bit and have been doing it for years. So there's a lot of catching up to do from that regard. So, so I'm curious to see what other edges, if they're able to find them. Could it be in scouting? Yeah. Would it be more than anything in development? And development feels like the area that needs the most growth yes. within the organization, right? We've,
0: we've talked about it. We've yelled about it. We've, there's not much to debate. I mean, it's pretty obvious it's an area of weakness uh, for the Canucks organization. Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah, let's uh, welcome in our next guest. It's Colby Armstrong. How's it going, Dog? What's going on, boys? Thanks for having me. Uh, how much of a golf guy do you become in the summer? <laughs> I have four kids, so not a <laughs>
2: few. <for golfing>. Yeah. <laughs> I not... do love, however, having four kids when I get to go golfing and telling my wife I'm, I'm going to go golfing tomorrow mm. and seeing the love on right. her face like you're leaving me at home with all these monsters for, <laughs> you know, likely 10 hours. You know how it goes, right? <laughs> Is it is it
1: kind of a bit of a shock that you go from playing the National Hockey League, thinking you know what, when I retire, I have so much more time to do stuff, and then you retire yeah. and you realize you have less time than when you were playing.
2: Yeah, I know it's crazy. So yeah, <laughs> we just got home, and you know, like for example, like every other people with kids, like we had lacrosse and this and that, and then we rushed home and made grilled cheese sandwiches for dinner, and just in time while well, the hockey game's on, and I barely watched the first period of this Carolina New York game. So uh hoping to settle in here now that we kind of got him in and settled but it's it's crazy you're right like time is just like see you later just see ya
0: <laughs> when, when you're watching your kids play do you become like will ferrell and kicking and screaming or, or are you pretty calm
2: <laughs> no i'm pre- <laughs> i'm pretty calm i'm pretty calm especially with like lacrosse i find just because i don't really under like i i like the sport i get it but i don't get it at the same time so My son's like kicking butt at that. I feel when I watch him, I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is unreal. And then with hockey, I'm a little more critical, I think, just because that's how my brain works, you know? So no, I'm not, I'm not going full Will Ferrell uh, (laughs) out on the field. I, I should do that. I, that would I'd actually fit in pretty good, I think, with the rest of the parents.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that movie kills me every time. Very, very underrated. Hey, Ambrose, yes. break someone's clavicle. That's what the medics for. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe don't go that far. Uh, uh, Colby Armstrong, our guest here on uh, on Canuck Central. So um, it, it was pretty interesting seeing the the fallout from from the Pittsburgh Penguins. Um, you know, maybe having their season come up a little bit short after uh, New York battles back from 3-1 yeah. down. Uh, what do you think the next steps are there in, in Pittsburgh with so much un- uncertainty around Malkin and uh, and Chris Letang?
2: Yeah, Malkin, Letang, Rust, Raquel, who they had got at the trade deadline, Casey DeSmith, all UFAs. So, um, yeah, I likely think we probably, like this is what I think, I think we probably saw... Uh, the last of, of you know, Latang Malkin, Sid playing together. Um, I don't know. I just get the feeling. I, I just think with players like that, if you could maybe get it done, mm-hmm. you know, previous to that, it would probably have been there. Um, also, the sale of the team. There's new ownership also here in Pittsburgh. And Fenway Sports Group will likely all everything is on the table and doing their assessments from top to bottom of their new property, the Pittsburgh Penguins that they have to go along with obviously the Red Sox and Liverpool and everything else that they have going on. So it's a, it's a big machine and um, you know, they kind of come in with, you know, without any skin in the game to the previous mm-hmm. years and are probably looking to move this thing forward in a certain direction or with a plan. And um I think that kind of leaves everything on the table here in Pittsburgh as actually, so I think this summer should be, fairly interesting to see what happens and you know when that when that happens too right like i think you know previous management and everything is kind of in review and Mm -hmm. uh i know those guys are fairly new in in ron hextall and you know you maybe even brian burke and others who who fall under that but i'm sure they're gonna you know do their due diligence and look at everything from top to bottom and under the hood and um you know see see what they're looking to do with their new purchase
1: And, you know, we've all kind of assumed, especially under the previous ownership and everything, that this organization is going to do everything they can to win as long as they have Sidney Crosby. And as long as Crosby's happy and he feels like he has a chance to win, that's all that matters. Is that going to be the same philosophy here for the next few years for Sid? Or could that also be on the table? Not trading him, but the fact that they may not be as ambitious to take advantage of having him for the last few years
2: yeah and i know i know obviously for the athlete and for sid like super competitive guy wants mm-hmm. to win at all costs and uh you know really obviously in his you know post-season press conference talked about you know malkin and and letang and, and what you know how he wishes they could stay there malkin expressed like he wants to retire a penguin but he gets you know if he has to move on and they don't want to go with new young blood he understands that he'll be fine he said that so you know, I, I think, you know, 16 year streak in the playoffs, um, you know, what the, the core group and what this organization has kind of stood for of, um, you know, looking at them from the outside is just a team that wins and team that gets it done. And I mean, that's headed by Sidney Crosby. So I can't imagine that expectation kind of changing. Well, some of the pieces and parts and core possibly change this summer. Uh, yeah, but uh, they're going to have to find a way to, you know, maybe at free agency and, you know, through the draft for once. Like what, like the penguins just don't draft at all. It seems like in the last few years, they just <laughs> the one thing they did do this year, I believe is hang on to their first round pick. And that's probably the first time it's happened in a long time. And, you know, Jim Rutherford was here previous. He's now there in Vancouver, but a guy that, you know, has had a good core that had the luxury of, you know, making moves and going for it because of how set they were at certain positions and how strong they were. And, and knowing that that window was open and, and, possibly could close and made a lot of uh, big moves and a lot of first round picks going out and players coming in and helping the team get better. So I I wonder if that mindset will change and how they're going to, you know, do business moving forward. And maybe, you know, the draft may be looked at as being, you know, much more important now um, seeing as where they're, where they're at. And does that mean they lose more than they win? Um, I don't know. Possibly we'll see what Sidney Crosby has to say about that.
0: So we're all expecting like just an absolute war for the battle of Alberta. Is it, is it going to live up to the hype?
2: Yeah, I know. I know. Right. That's the big letdown. I I've been thinking about that too, because I'm really excited about it. Like seeing Calgary get through against Dallas, just to, you know, to solidify this matchup, second round matchup. I think like my phone was blowing up with buddies from back home. I'm from Saskatoon, of course. So there's some flames and Oilers and Canucks fans even. So it's kind of spread out around there, but uh, I think everyone, just in general, if you're a hockey fan, is looking forward to the possibilities of what this could be. And I know it's been what when was it ninety ninety one yeah. last time they played. So it's it's kind of you know it's kind of old uh, since it's been you know in the spotlight or been what it used to be. Uh, of course, we had like the Mike Smith fight, and we had a couple you know incidences over the years here previously that kind of stirred that emotion up, but. Uh, I think this just puts it on another level, right? I think the expectations also, and you look at the players on each team too. I think it, you know, yes, McDavid and Dreisaitl and Gaudreau, and you could go down and on and on about, you know, good players. But I think, you know, majority of them understand and and play, can play a pretty, you know, physical style game, especially, you know, the way the flames are built. So I think, and I I think it should be, I don't know if it'll ever touch what it was of the violence that was the 91 series or uh, the hockey back in the day. But I think what we're going to see in the first round is I think that we'll see probably the best series. I think uh, that's what I'm expecting anyways, just because there's so much more at stake than just hockey, right? It's like city versus city interprovince, and like the fan bases, which is going to put this thing over the top. And I think it like the emotion and passion will just be like higher than any other series.
0: Do you really just like start to hate the guys on the other end in a playoff series? Like is that, is that yeah. how it goes generally?
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it does. And you see them a little bit, right. So things are kind of stoked through the, through the season and, you know, everything gets, you know, a lot more focused, I feel in a playoff series. Like I, I got to do between the benches for the game six of the Leafs and Tampa. And in my, you know, previous leading up to it, I was told like, Oh, listen, listen to the chirps down there. I heard they're just going at it. So I was down there and I was like, man, there was no chirping. Like these guys were just completely locked in. and it, And I think it, I think that, you get that in the playoffs is just that certain sense of lock in. But I, I do think there's players on both teams who like getting their noses dirty, aren't afraid to do it. And, you know, I can see butting heads throughout this series constantly. And I think that's what brings it out, too, in the playoffs, right? Is mm-hmm. seeing the same opponent all the time preparing, you know, certain ways for each team or, you know, certain, what certain guys do or certain lines or looks of each team. But also, you get like matchups, too, mm-hmm. where you see a guy every single night through the series. Uh, and it's, and it, and it starts to build right as you go on. So, uh, I don't know what to expect. I don't know what to expect, expect on who's going to win. Really. I kind of feel like Calgary may have more depth and, an advantage and, um, -hmm. you know, possibly goaltending just consistency. But, uh, I think regardless, it's going to be, it's going to be a really like, I'm like a hype series. I think it's, I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to be really good. I'm looking forward to it.
1: Well, yeah. And you know, I, I wanted to get your perspective on this cuz there's so much talk about I mean, we have to go back to the 90s last time these two teams met. So I mean, we, we don't have much of a recent historical context for it. But one thing that yeah, I was 9. I was 9. <laughs> yeah. And I was 7. So yeah. that kind of tells yeah. you so I <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I but, wasn't even born. <laughs> 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 That's not true. But, uh, no. just, yeah. But uh, no but but one of the things that keeps being talked about about those series especially even the 80s and stuff too was just how much hatred there was in the city. You could feel it in the stands, you could feel it in 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 the in when you walk around the town and just when you're at the rink and everything. So, how much does that enhance things when you see the fan base really get after? Does that really enhance the rivalry or is it, or is it really just about what's happening on the ice?
2: Yeah, I think I think both work hand in hand, but I think the fans have more of an impact than, than you know, you may think, like, I really think that like, they dictate a lot of the emotion passion and energy. Um, And whether it's outside in the parking lot with the watch parties to like the total vibe in the city leading up to a game day or on a game day, it's, it's, it just elevates and heightens everything. And I think, I think, you know, you watched the game last night in, in Florida. I mean, that was, that was brutal. Like the atmosphere was brutal. And I know the heat we're playing at the same time, but you know you look at other series and you look what's going to happen in this in this battle of alberta and what the fan bases are going to mean to each team through this i think is huge and will elevate for sure the play on the ice and will elevate the emotion and the passion from the players on the ice um and will draw like the best hockey out of these teams as well and you know that's that's some of a playoff hockey that you just can't touch is is you know the fan bases and the feeling and you know, going rink to rink and, and feeling the difference of the home crowd because it, it can really sway or swing games or, you know, elevate that one moment of momentum that you do get. It can take it like 10 times higher. So, um, yeah, they're, they're a big part of the game. They're a big part of the feeling. They're a big part of the passion and emotion. And, um, you know, they can have impacts on, I think, moments through games and, and in games in general.
0: Colby Armstrong, our guest, uh, is anybody stopping the Colorado Avalanche?
2: Oh, my God. What dimension are they from? Like
0: <laughs> Seriously, they're like from a galaxy far away. Like they came out of I Star know. Wars or something.
2: I know. Like, do they have rocket boosters on their skates or <laughs> what? Like, I, I was watching last night going, oh, my God. Like, every line, every guy is just, it's just on another level. And, you know, they had all this downtime to get back in. And, like, could St. Louis possibly have a little bit of an edge being a little bit more game ready, let's just say? Uh, but man, they did not take their foot off the gas from drop of the puck to the end and still ended up squeaking it out in overtime. But you're right. I don't know looking at them. I don't know what team plays at that pace or or any other team that plays at that level through their entire lineup. So it's an embarrassment of riches as well with the players that they have, not only up front but on their back end. Um, Players that are able to dictate the game and change the game all Mm -hmm. through their lineup. So... It it's going to be tough, I think, to knock them off just watching them because they were sent, they, their team was sent from another galaxy. There's no question.
1: <laughs> well, my question about them, and maybe it's not even the Blues being able to take advantage of it, because one thing they don't do really well, and this is a very small issue they have compared to all the good things they do, is defending in their own zone. They move the puck really yeah. well, but they don't spend enough time for that to be an issue in their own zone. But if they don't play with the same pace they did, is that maybe the biggest weakness that... They can get running around if you get some zone time. But the question is, how do you get zone time against them?
2: Yeah, and we saw last night, right? Like, they were getting caught, hemmed in their mm-hmm. end a long time to barely able to get changes to, like, now on-man rushes due to bad changes. And, you know, that's what these guys do with their speed and pressure. And I, I think, you know, you look at, you know, talk about boxing, like styles make fights. So, obviously, mm-hmm. these are two different stylistic teams. So there's no question about it. And St. Louis is like a ground-and-pound type kind of team. And I think they can execute off the rush but not with the speed and ferocity that avalanche, the avalanche team can. And I think their best bet is to, you know, obviously do your best to eat up as much of the boards and zone time in the offensive zone as you can really stretch the offensive zone too, to make them work to check you too. So, you know, almost Sedine like, right. Where they would go from one corner to the other side, you know, just keep, keep working it and stretching them out where they have to collapse, and then they have to spread out and you can start to open them up and maybe expose them a little bit, but it's easier said than done in doing that because, They're so fast at eliminating things or eliminating through the neutral zone that it's it makes it difficult to even get down in the zone or even get, get in there to get on a forecheck. Uh, their D can skate so well. So, I mean, they're just a different animal, different beast, and easier said than done. But if the Blues, I think, have, can stand a chance against these guys, they have to be really opportunistic. There's no question. Like Ro- O'Reilly, when he picked off that little turnover and buried it, you have to bury those because meanwhile avalanche hit like five posts Mm -hmm. on top of it but you have to try to dictate you know offensively the offensive zone of just making it ugly slowing it down uh making them work in the d zone by stretching the zone and and trying to gobble up some time in their end that way and 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 wasting shifts and tiring them out because that's kind of how i think the blues are built Mm -hmm. a little bit so i think that's that's one way you can try to slow down their game because I mean if they get it through open ice or in transition, it's 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 insane what they can do from top to bottom through their lineup.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. That's kind of the only way the Blues can win. I'm not even, even sure they can. I mean the team that I look at that can pose them the biggest issues is the Tampa Bay Lightning. And that's not a big surprise. Yeah. But the reason I say so, Colby, and I want to get your take on this and you know, talk about coming from a different planet. Is there a team that can play different styles as effectively as the Tampa Bay Lightning can. I mean, if worse comes to worse, yeah. they can play like Dallas Stars did, yet they have all the high-end talent. They have the goaltender. I mean, that's the team that can probably throw a real wrench into what Colorado's trying to do because they can they can trap it up as well as anybody if they want to.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing to see because I kind of feel like they did that to Florida a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think Florida wants to be you know, fast and trends. they want to play like Colorado. And wouldn't that be good? I think Florida, Colorado would be fun. It'd be like eight, eight games, you know, like crazy old time hockey, just running the score up. Cause I think that's <laughs> yeah. the way both those teams want to play. <clears throat> but it was interesting, like, you know, hearing Cooper through the first round against the Leafs and hearing him say, you know, you know, our guys got it. Our guys get it. Our guys will figure it out. My guys know like how to, you know, do this or do that. And it's like, there's such a belief in understanding and in executing to win um, that I think he has through his, through his group. And you're right. You're right. They're like a chameleon. Hey, they can kind of transform into whatever it takes for them to win. And then on top of it, have, you know, good enough power play, good enough skill and, you know, arguably the best goalie that was is sent from another dimension as well uh, that can save their bacon when they need it. So yeah, Tampa Bay has been a great story. I didn't know if they would get through the Leafs. I thought they would present a challenge to the Leafs for sure, obviously, uh, but it didn't look like they were the same as they were in, in years previous. Um, but here they are up the first game in the second round and knocked off the Leafs who were, you know, more or less an offensive juggernaut and, you know, really did a good job against them. So, I mean, uh, and, and without Braden point as well, again, yeah. Florida too. So experienced group with uh, a lot of different ways to beat you. And I think the total team buy-in, but Tampa Bay has been really impressive what John Cooper's got with his group there. But I'll say this, Colorado, Florida, would you not love that? Oh. Would you not think that would be amazing? Like, just two teams that want to open it up and go back and forth. Let's go.
0: I'm we'll be playing at light speed, man. Uh, <laughs> Colby, we, uh, we appreciate the time as always, man. We'll talk soon.
2: All right, yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. Good talking to you guys.
1: Uh, there is uh, one of the best, Colby Armstrong. Oh, Terrific. I, I mean, he... he... He's just so infectious, yeah. You know, just such a positive, fun personality. Every time you have a chat with Colby, always come away smiling. Always come away happy. Um, Colorado, Florida would be a pretty good final too. From, from a pure okay, so it depends on how you view things, and I get it from from just purely like both fast, teams would play run and gun. They it would be run and gun game, hundred percent. But one one thing about those series is it could really be lopsided one way or another. Yeah. It can be really fun, but then it's like five-game series, Colorado wins. Because their advantage in doing what they do is just so much better than Florida's advantage. I mean, potentially. So that's the only thing. I love the Styles makes fights series. And that's why I'm kind of salivating over Colorado and Tampa meeting in the final. Because I think that could be a long, hard-fought series. A lot of different things that can happen that would be like a hockey nerd's dream. Uh, it's Canuck Central, Dan Riccio, and Satyar
0: Shaw. Bet on hockey like never before with Play Now Sports, your local BC sports book. Uh, let's take a look at the games going tonight. Right now, the New York Rangers have a 1 nothing lead on the Carolina Hurricanes in game one of that series. You can live bet on that one. Carolina is paying 220, so getting a little bit of juice for the team that was the heavy favorite. Going in, if it's anything like the Rangers and Penguins series, we saw a lot of lead changes and a lot of comebacks in that series. You wonder if that could happen here. You know, just watching some of the game here in the studio, Rangers have had their fair share of chances. They've really been the better team so far. Anti-Ranta has had to make 19 saves, made a couple of big ones. I saw Tyler Mott setting up Ryan Reeves for a big chance. So that's a, a, an interesting play right now if you're going to look at making a live bet. But game one of the Oilers and sat. Oilers go into this one. Heavy dogs, 245 on the money line. Flames are 157. Leon Dreisaitl did not take morning skate. Chris Tanev did take morning skate for the Calgary Flames.
1: Yeah, and if Tanev's taking morning skate, you probably feel pretty good about him playing. Mm -hmm. I would guess, but we'll see how that goes. I would say this, though. Even if Tanev plays, but he's not 100% Tanev, he can still get by, but we've seen in Vancouver when Tanev's not at his best, he's a warrior, but he does make some mistakes when that happens. So that could be a bit of an issue. Um, man, I kind of like the value on the Oilers in the series and in these games. That's where I'm at. I mean, listen, Calgary's a better team, no doubt. Mm -hmm. They have more. Mm -hmm. But... When McDavid decides to go Supernova, Calgary hasn't been able to stop him in the past. <laughs> and the way McDavid's going right now, I don't feel good enough about the Flames winning this series for me to bet on the Flames. Let me put it that way. The value for me is on the Oilers here. Yeah.
0: It, it's hard to bet against Connor McDavid as an underdog. Like, that. That's that's really it. That's the story. I just really... I don't love the way Woodcroft sets up his lineup. I don't love the idea of Nugent Hopkins playing alongside Josh Archibald. I don't like the way that Yessi Pugliarvi has been pushed down the lineup. He's basically played 60 minutes at 5-on-5. Five five. Very successful mm-hmm. 60 minutes at 5-on-5. Five five. But it's it's not enough. I I just don't get the disdain around Pugliarvi. I know some of it is, well, his details aren't always the best, and trust, and, and like, look at the numbers. Sometimes the numbers just tell you the story, right? There's there's a lot of good there, and maybe you get frustrated that there's not enough finish to his game. Like, I don't care how many chances you're getting, if you're not finishing, you are not going to stay in a
1: top six role. It's kind of like what uh, Boudreaux said about Hoaglander. Yeah. Yeah, you're creating. You're yeah. making mistakes, or you're not scoring enough. If you're going to play that way, you better score. Right. So,
0: I guess that's fair, but I think Pulley R.V. being pushed down the Oilers lineup is something they can't really afford to keep doing, especially with Drysidle hurting. That's you know that's the X factor in the series. How much do they get out of Drysidle? And I'm I'm not sure they get a ton out of
1: them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely fair. Um, I think Drysaddle is still so dangerous on the man advantage yeah. that he's still going to be able to give you something there. And just the attention he's got to be demanding when he's on the ice. So he's still going to be making a difference. I'm with you on Paul Yarvey. When I watch him, however, though, when I look at what he's trying to figure out in his own zone, I get it. Like, And I hate doing this, man, because I, I, I'm, I'm always like, hey, play the guys, right? Play the young guys, screw, screw these old coaches and everything. But when I watch Jesse Paul Yarvey play, I kind of get it. You get it? I kind of get it. Like, I love his offense. I love a lot of things he does. But he, he 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 makes a lot of bad reads. Right. And especially defensively, about where to go and what to do and what space to cover. In the playoffs, man, you miss assignments in the playoffs, coach ain't going to play you. Yeah. You know, you got to score at such a high level, and he misses a lot of assignments. And I hate it because I want, I want to be on his side. <laughs> but when I'm watching him miss assignments, I'm like, ah, I kind of get it. You're not rotating.
0: Uh, which side of the Battle of Alberta are you on? You'll hear that game tonight here on Sportsnet. 650. It's Dan Riccio, Satyar Shah, coming up here on Canuck Central. It's a tu- uh, Usually we do prospect previews on Tuesdays, but we pushed it since we had the Boudreaux interview on yesterday's show, which you should check back on the podcast. So today, Scott Wheeler will join us from The Athletic. Uh, they had a mock draft up today. We'll tell you who they had going to the Canucks and maybe even get a thought on that player from Scott Wheeler. It's Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. This is Canuck Central. Hour number two continues, and it's presented by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned B.C. company helping local business since 18. 18- 92 more previews uh and uh thoughts coming up on the stanley cup playoffs through the course of the show also overrated or underrated it's coming up after six o'clock good times ahead everybody's favorite wednesday segment it's fun man i look forward to it i do as well and I- i'm interested to hear about your day sat that's a little tease coming up uh, a couple things after six o'clock yeah um so we're going to talk to Scott Wheeler uh NHL draft previews ramping up obviously and here on uh, Canuck Central will be the place to be to really break down especially that first round and what the Canucks could be looking at at uh 15th overall. You're going to hear a lot of different names. We've talked a lot about the defenseman is there other players that we could see landing to the Canucks at 15th overall scott wheeler the athletic now joining us to help uh, break down the nhl draft and some of the prospects that may be available at 15th overall for the vancouver canucks thanks for this scott how are you
3: i'm doing well i'm currently uh sitting in the hate to plug myself here but sitting in the basement of my house here uh editing my the manuscript of my book which will be out this fall so Neck deep in that uh, before I picked <laughs> up this call.
0: Hey, man, uh, always here for, for a plug. Uh, wh- wh- what's what's the book?
3: The book is uh, called On the Clock, Behind the Scenes with the Toronto Maple Leafs at the NHL Draft, and it is 20 stories that sort of begin in the 60s when the NHL draft did and bring you right through to the the pandemic draft of 2021, sort of stories of people, scouts, general managers – players that were selected uh, decisions that were made at the draft table that kind of a thing
0: so what we're gonna need to know is uh, the addresses of some of the people in BC that are buying this book and then we'll know who the clo- <laughs> then we'll know who the closet leaf fans are <laughs>
3: yeah yes. we can start a manhunt
0: uh, Scott wheeler joining us here on uh, on Canuck Central so um let, let, how do you feel about this upcoming draft and how it's mm-hmm. how it's shaping up
3: Better today than I was at the start of the year, which is funny because I actually mm-hmm. feel a little bit worse today about its first overall pick than I was coming into the year. So typically, if you have the top of the draft weekend, that tends to make me a little less comfortable with the draft as a whole, just because they do skew so much nowadays towards the top, I don't know, 10 to 15, 10 to 16 picks in every draft class. But uh, in saying that, I, this draft class has just gotten deeper for me as as the year has gone on. At the start of the year, I would have probably argued that I liked uh, sort of eight or nine kids at the very top, and then maybe 20, 21 kids in terms of the, the really quality depth in the first round. Now I like a dozen players at the top and maybe 28, 29 players uh, off the off the top in the first round, a few of which will be available in the second round. So starting to get more excited about the the depth of players that I'm fond of. Uh, and that that's uh without even going a step further than that. I mean even my my final top 100, which will be out June six, it typically really drops off at eighty and I have a very difficult time sort of rounding out mm. the the final twenty. This year it drops off at eighty eight eighty nine ninety kind of thing. so uh, the, uh, players that came across my my radar as the year went on that I grew to actually quite like. so it's been it's been fun on that side of this draft too actually. Uh, sort of develop a greater appreciation for it as this year has gone on and I think part of that is just due to getting to know the players in a much shorter mm-hmm. period than we're used to after we had WHL seasons that were shortened last year and the J20 season uh, in Sweden was cut short last year and then obviously the OHL played so uh, there's just been a steeper learning curve getting to know these players this time around.
1: Well I know a lot of Canucks fans will be happy to to hear that there is more uh positives in this draft as far as a bit more depth especially for a year the Canucks are picking 15th and you mentioned the top 12 is is a pretty solid group to, at the top of the draft and uh, we had Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin who spoke, spoke to the media not too long ago and one of the things that uh, they mentioned was they believe the 12, the top 15 is a very similar range so a little bit larger than your mm. group can you see that, that that it actually that some teams could view it as a top 15
3: Well, definitely. And as always tends to happen, there are always, whether it's a top 12 or a top nine or a top eight, there are always two or three players from my sort of core group at the top that maybe differ from Mm -hmm. the consensus. So there are players from that 12 that are going to be available for the Canucks at 15. Uh, There are at least two players that I think will definitely be available available. For the Canucks at 15, so uh, that that's exciting for me. If, if you're a Canucks fan, there there's going to be I think some some real cuts to take there, some home run swings to take there, uh, and then even outside of that top 12, there's probably five or six kids who follow in the teams for me, sort of between 13 and 19 for me, five or six kids that every NHL team is fond of and that many NHL teams have kind of in that group of 12 or 15. So uh, the, the, it's really. The consensus group at the top, I mentioned that mine goes to about 28, 29 of kids that I really like. But the consensus group at the top is about 18 players that are the widely considered best players in this draft. If you were to pull 10 NHL scouts and uh, four or five of those kids are going to be still around when the Canucks pick. So uh, they're, they're going to have no shortage of legit, legit options there.
0: We know, um, you know, the Canucks as an organization. Uh, well, the prospect pool is pretty shallow in general, but especially on, on the back end. And there seems to be a, a few they'll have fall to them at fifteen. What what does it look like in the mid range of the first round with defensive prospects?
3: So there's really the two the two off the top that are going to go in quick succession. I expect uh, the Seattle Kraken at fourth overall will take a defenseman after having taken Matt Beniers a year ago. So one of Simon Nemitz and David Juracek will be gone at four to Seattle. Almost certainly, I'd be pretty surprised if it doesn't go that way. And then the other one isn't going to linger long. But there is a group of, a handful of defensemen after that group that have really solidified themselves in that group of 18 that I mentioned. There's Denton Matichuk who played this year for a a team that is fine, a team in Moose Jaw that has finally come out of a rebuild and had a very competitive season. And Denton was arguably the the very biggest part of that. Uh, He's a fabulous sort of two way modern style calculating type of defenseman uh, really, really fond of Denton. He'll be in that, that sort of top 18 for me when my final list comes out. The other is Kevin Korczynski of uh, the Seattle Thunderbirds who has also liked Denton had a heck of a playoff run with that Seattle team, which is a ton of fun to watch. Uh so Kevin's a player that I would really, really keep an eye on. He's longer than Denton. Denton's kind of the five foot eleven, six foot type. Mm-hmm. Korczynski's the six foot one, six foot two, smooth skating uh defenseman, great edges, really light on his feet despite being a long rangey kid, uh, and has really had a tremendous season. So those are probably the two kids that I would keep an eye on outside of that, the the two big ones, obviously, who aren't going to be available at fifteen. But even beyond them, Pavel Mintyukov out of the OHL, Ryan Chesley out of the National Development Program, Seamus Casey out of the National Development Program, though Casey would be a little bit high there. Tristan Luno uh, has some big, big fans and was the first overall pick into the QMJHL and is still playing, actually playing as we speak with the Gatineau Olympiques in their second round series against Shewinigan. Uh, so there there are several options that are going to be available there, but I would probably argue, and I think the consensus of NHL scouts would say the same, that the t- if you're looking for a defenseman at 15, the two targets are one of Kevin Kurczynski or Denton Matichak. So those are the names that, that Canucks fans should really be getting to know.
1: Uh, Scott Wheeler from The Athletic is our guest here on Canuck Central. And your colleague at The Athletic, uh, Corey Promin, had his first round mock draft up on The Athletic. And at number 15, he has the Canucks taking Brad Lambert, the Canadian Finnish centerman, who is super fast, has a lot of skill. But like Corey mentions and others have mentioned, there are teams that don't want to draft him or are not as high on him. What, where do you see the faults in his game? Because when you watch him, you watch his speed, you watch his talent. There are a lot of tangible assets that the kid has.
3: Yeah, I'm still a fan of of Brad's. It's been a tricky season for him. He had an injury and an illness right off the hop. Then as he came back from that and got into form, his teammate with JYP over in, in Liga, Joachim Kemmel, who is another top prospect for this year's draft, was really taking charge of the league and had become the league's best young player. And as a result, there just weren't enough opportunities for both Lambert and Kemmel to really succeed in, in that in that on that roster, and as the season wore on, things didn't go well for him. then suddenly you're spilling into scoreless streaks in in Liga after he's already been in that league for parts of three seasons with how quickly he progressed up the junior ranks and dominated dominated at the junior ranks in Finland, and then suddenly he's doing what is basically the worst case scenario for every player in this in their draft year, which is moving teams. I have often said that moving teams is one of the very worst things that can happen to a player whether it's just through a trade deadline in in junior hockey that has nothing to do with them when they're going from a contender to a rebuilding team or vice versa. Uh, It's just very difficult to move, find a new home, get comfortable with a new coach. Those are things that are perfectly okay to happen after you've been drafted. But when, when your season uh, is predicated on you having success quickly uh, and maintaining success over the course of a year, a 10 game adjustment period where you're in a new house and you're, uh, playing under a new coach and you're figuring it out with new line mates. That just is is almost never good for a draft eligible player, at least in terms of their draft stock. So it was just a tricky, tricky season for Brad. And then suddenly concerns about his work ethic and his play off the puck and what he looks like when he's not getting a touch, a lot of touches. And many of those things are are real concerns. He can fade in games when he's not really involved and he doesn't have the puck on his stick a lot. But I still see all of the t- other tools there, just the natural gifts offensively. He's one of the very best skaters in the draft. He's got some of the better hands in the draft. He can shoot the puck like an NHLer. He does look like he should develop into a nice offensive player. And now it's about, okay, which team is willing to look past this this rough season that he had hit the restart button with them and try to get the most out of him. And at what point in, in the first round does that become a comfortable gamble for teams? And I think increasingly that's not going to be something that a lot of teams are comfortable with in the top 10. But if you're the Vancouver Canucks at 15, I, I would have a tough, I would have a tough time passing on him there. I, I think that's the range where he deserves to go at this point in the draft. And I think if he slips into the twenties or dare I say, even the thirties that a team could be could be getting the steal of the draft at that point if they play their cards right. So uh, I still have a lot of belief in Brad. I, I would not be surprised in the least in the least if Brad has a, a very big season next year wherever he decides to play, uh, and then really makes a statement. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with this next chapter. But there's no question his season this year and the way he played and the way it played out has complicated things for him.
0: At Scott C. Wheeler on uh, on Twitter, and I know you've been following the um, you know the, some of the kids and draft eligibles that are playing right now at the World Championships. And a name that's coming up a lot here in Vancouver is is Marco Casper. Uh, what what do you think of Casper? And um, you know he's playing about twenty minutes right now. Uh, he's, he seems to be getting on pretty well.
3: Yeah, he he's been a nice story. Heading into this year, he was kind of viewed as a second-round pick, and then about a month into the season, it was like, okay, this kid's a first-round pick. And then as the year has progressed, he's worked his way into that sort of consensus eighteen or nineteen players that I talked about. So. Uh, I think he's at the back of that group personally. I, I, I would take him sort of more around 20 and I think 15 is certainly a, a fine place to to take him through the Vancouver Canucks. But there have been some discussions about him being sort of a fringe top 10 guy, the kind of player who goes 10th or 11th or 12th overall. And I that would be the, probably the point where I think it's a little bit too rich. Uh, I've actually spent a lot of time watching him with Rogla and getting to know him. I know the staff over there quite well. Uh, they've got a great story there with twin brothers who are the general manager and head coach of that, t- that SHL team. And uh, I think the Abbott brothers do a tremendous job with that organization. They've rebuilt it from really a, a dregs of the league team into one of the Titans of European hockey. Uh, and, and he's, a, he's next in line. They're just, just another one of those kids as, Mills Hoglander was before him with that program who's just keeps getting better. And obviously Moritz Sider was there last year. Mm-hmm. They they have a habit now of developing top prospects for the NHL. And he's, he's the next kid that they really believe him. They really, really liked him. They think he's got skill on the puck, but they also more than a, more than the skill are really fond of his two way game. And that is what allowed him to progress up and play a full season in the SHL this year, which is pretty rare for a kid, his age, especially, coming from Austria and not, not coming up through the Swedish ranks and being the sort of junior hero that a lot of the kids that like the Lucas Raymonds and the Alexander Holtzes were when they got early promotions. So uh, he's become a great story, uh, a, a two-way center. I, I don't think he's going to be a highly productive player offensively, uh, but if he can be a... Fifty-point centerman for you and be detail-oriented. That's a that's a six million, six and a half million, seven million-dollar player in mm-hmm. today's NHL. So uh, I, I think people hear a number like fifty and go, oh, if we're draft, drafting in the front half in the first round. We should be looking for more than that. But uh, increasingly, that that's a huge success story in that kind of a range. So uh, that's that's in theory. If if Marco becomes and sort of hits his ceiling, that's what you're hoping you get out of him.
1: Well, one player I also wanted to kind of ask you about, and I'm really interested to see where he ultimately gets drafted. Super talented, but he's only 5'9". That is Matthew Savoy, who maybe he's more of a winger than a center to two in the NHL. And I know that's been some of the assessments, perhaps. Where do you see him going? Because talent-wise, he should be going high. But because of his size, maybe if he's more of a winger, like Cole Caulfield, as we saw, he went a bit later than, you know, his talent really perhaps should have had him gone in his draft year a few years ago. Where do you see him kind of going in this draft?
3: Well, I'm a huge fan of Savoy. Savoy's mm-hmm. been 2-3 uh, on my board all year. He'll be in that same kind of a range uh, on my final board when it drops in a couple of weeks here. I am a big, big believer in Matt Savoy. He is tremendously talented. He's got an NHL shot. He's got unbelievable speed, hands, like the whole package offensively. He's a threatening player whenever the puck is on his stick. And even when the puck is off of his stick because of his one-timer and the way that he moves off the puck with his skating. Uh, Another player who's a top, top top-end skating, got an explosive sort of pull-away gear. And then on top of that, he's a hound. He's, He's the engine of his line. He chases down every loose puck, finishes every check, plays a very driven game uh, that has really endeared himself everywhere he's been. Uh, So a huge, huge fan of Savoy. I actually think he's quite capable of sticking at center because Mm -hmm. of the way that he plays and that sort of tenacious style that he plays off the puck. Uh, but whether he's a center or a winger at the NHL level, I think he's one of the, the very most talented players in this draft class. A lot like I felt that way about Kent Johnson, who went fifth overall to Columbus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, there is a chance that he slips outside of the sort of top five range that I believe he belongs in. Uh, I'm not sure whether that'll slip out of the top 10. Uh, I would have a hard time seeing five, six, seven teams pass up on him once he's outside of the top five. Yeah, But uh, maybe who slides to ten, eleven, and if you're the Canucks, you and, and you're really fond of him, maybe there's a move-up situation there where you can move up from fifteen to eleven and, and grab your guy. So, uh, as far as the Canucks go, he's maybe not completely out of the question for them in that kind of a scenario, but more than likely he'll be he'll be long gone before it's their chance.
0: Hey Scott, really appreciate the time today. All the best with the book.
3: Cheers, thanks, guys. Anytime.
0: Uh, there is Scott Wheeler of the Athletic
1: joining us here on Canuck Central. Yeah, I mean, uh, that was some good insight by Scott. And I think Matt Savoy is really funny because yeah. um, he's a guy who's only 5'9", but he's really, really dynamic and he's yeah. really spectacular. And Kent Johnson was a little bit taller. yeah. So I wonder, and I'm really sure, I mean, I, hey, listen, I haven't watched the guys enough to sit here and say he's got to go top three or whatever, but everybody I've talked to him for what I've seen, he's super talented. I'm just kind of wondering though, I mean, anytime a guy's under 5'10", yeah, NHL does get a little squeamish. Yep, and we've seen guys like dropping down.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, should Caulfield have gone in the middle of the uh, 2019
1: draft the way that he did? I mean, if if Cole Caulfield was six feet tall, maybe he does it. I mean, Kent Johnson was <laughs> six, six, one Cole yeah. F- Caulfield's five seven. Yep, you know, and and Savoy's five nine.
0: Like all Caulfield did was score, you know, and you knew he was going to score at the NHL level too, and he has.
1: Yeah, right. I mean Marco Rossi, who went ninth. Yeah. He's five nine, kinda a of very similar player to a Matthew Savoy. They don't seem to be usually going that top five range.
0: No. They they tend to drop out of the top five. Um I wanna say Marner is, is under six feet. Um and he was, you know, fifth overall pick to the to the Toronto Maple Leafs. He's, but I
1: think he's he's at six feet. I think his okay. Like, so maybe he was but he his uh his listed height is six feet.
0: Okay. Sometimes listed height is uh... As an inch off or so. But <laughs>
1: regardless, Martyr's not big, but he's not tiny. Yeah. Anybody who's under 5'10 is considered s- very small by NHL standards. And, you know, I get it.
0: Uh, but look, the best players in the league still find ways to get it done. Mm-hmm. Uh, talented players find ways to score. And we see it time and time and time again. It's Dan Riccio and Satyar Shaw coming up. Overrated, underrated. And, uh, You'll want to hear some of our own to go along with the many submissions we've got from you, the listener. That's coming up next on Canuck Central.